0: Bible here, we love the Bible here, that's good, we're getting warmed up, and, uh, so, and, and we are preaching through 1 Corinthians, and this series has us landing now in this glorious chapter of uh, the 15th that he wrote in the first letter, it is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of course our resurrection as those who have been joined to him by faith. He's already through the first few verses, cha- uh, from verse 1 to 4, let me read that for you now. the scriptures. That's where we started. That's the, the foundation of the gospel is that Jesus is the God-man who has come into our world, into human flesh, human existence, lived the life we could never live, died the death we should have died, resurrected to uh, assure and ensure to us that we will go with him into eternal life with him if we believe in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul has preached that as absolute truth. And then the next part that he does from about verse verse 5 through to 11, he's proving the fact, or or rather, he's not defending the resurrection of Jesus. It defends itself. It's just absolute reality. However, he's saying since that happened, it has left behind a wake of witnesses who saw it, have been giving witness to that, have been preaching all about it. So they, they were the first two. And then, of course, the third thing that we looked at was that those witnesses who saw the resurrection became workers because of the res- resurrection power that became innate to them. That by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans eight eleven tells us, now dwells in those who have faith and therefore we get busy with eternal, infinite, Jesus, Holy Spirit, resurrection up from the dead power in our lives because hell exists. Because the cross exists is a historical fact because in his resurrection he sealed the salvation of anyone who will believe and because the Holy Spirit is among us and empowering that message. It is worthy to be worked hard for. It is a message that is worth laboring to get out in whatever way God has gifted us as we read in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But now in this section... I'm asking you to put on your theology caps because he goes from from sheer proclamation. He's going to go from proclamation to argumentation. And he's going to go from preaching to sort of teaching about theology. Now, we know they're all interconnected. You don't really preach without some elements of argumentation. You don't ever preach without some teaching of theology. But Paul is really zeroing in on verses 12 through 19 in logical, even a little bit of philosophical, theological argumentation. I'm going to read it, and then we will start breaking it down about all uh, what he means and all that it infers. He's going to make one overarching argument. I, w- I want to say this before you read it so you can see it in the text. He's going to make one overarching argument and then infer five logical conclusions from that argument. The argument that he's going to make is in verse 13 and 17. He basically repeats himself. And what he says is that if one man, Jesus, rose from the dead, there is no logical ability to say that there is a universal negative saying people do not rise from the dead. What to say is Paul says it, if the dead are not raised in general, Jesus was not raised in particular the reality of a logical or universal absolute is that a single exception obliterates it. It's not a logical absolute. It's not a universal truth if there are any exceptions whatsoever. So he's speaking into the Corinthian mess of a church because there are some in them. We don't know how many. We don't know how, how influential this was, but it's enough that Paul uh, ends his letter with this enormous chapter, this climactic tirade against this false theology but enough of them had bought into the errors. Now, the errors, as we've established in prior weeks, they could have come from the Sadducees, the the, the Jewish teachers, or they could have come from the Greek philosophy side of things because the church uh, was obviously plagued by Jewish heresies that sort of just naturally carried over from the Old Testament people, uh, but also it was situated in Corinth, a, a, a Greek and Roman colony. So it's very much at the center of all of these worlds. The, the, the Greek philosophers taught that the soul in you is that spark of the divine. It's eternal. It doesn't die, but it's currently jailed, prisoned by flesh, which is evil and horrible and disgusting, and that's why you suffer. But death is good news because at death, you, you escape the body and you go into some celestial, eternal abode where you don't have bodies, you don't eat food, there's no creation, it's just disembodied paradise. It's not the Christian gospel. It's not at all uh, able to be fixed in with the Christian gospel. And the Sadducees had actually just believed that there's nothing after this life. This is the one God made us for. This is the one we should live it up in. This is the one that the Bible teaches us about. Nothing future, nothing coming after death. This is it. So whichever heresy came, Paul's, Paul's recognizing that in the Corinthians, some of them believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we do not raise from the dead saying let's get logical, let's get philosophical, let's get theological, that makes no sense. You believe in a universal absolute about humans, but then you believe in an exception which destroys that absolute. If humans don't raise from the dead, why did God raise up our forerunner? If God, in his timeline, has no uh, intent to raise humanity up in their bodies from the grave, then why did he do it to our exemplar, our forerunner, our priority, our primary front carriage of the train. Why did he do it to him if he does not intend to do it to all in him? This is Paul's argument. This is Paul's logic. We're going to see that argument come out and then he's going to infer five things as we read and you'll see them as we go through. So verse 12 is where we pick up tonight. Hear now the word of the one true triune living God. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And lastly, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the most of all people to be pity. May God bless the reading and expounding and hearing and loving and delighting in of his own precious authoritative word. Paul begins tonight in this argument. This is a, 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 a little bit of Latin warning. Not speaking in tongues. We went through 1 Corinthians 14. The, the, the Latin here is reductio ad absurdum. You're welcome. That's free. Write it down. Sounds super smart in your next meeting. Reductio ad absurdum is a logical argument where you take somebody's argument or somebody's position and you sort of you you disagree with it, but for argument's sake, you, you sort of pop them out of the driver's seat, you get in it, and you drive it to its logical conclusion, which is a, a, an absurd dead end. So Paul does. He says, Okay, you proclaim that Christ has risen from the dead, but you believe that the dead are not raised. Let me get into your argument and abductio ad absurdum reduce it down to its most absurd conclusions, which you obviously haven't been able to infer. But I'll infer that for you. And so he starts making these arguments. Number one, his number one argument here is, inference number one in verse 14, our preaching and your faith is in vain. The first thing that we're going to, even before we start pulling that apart, the first thing we need to realize is that The Christian religion, if we want to call it that, the Christian theology, Christian truth as it comes out of the word of God, is such a complete and consistent whole with every part interconnected and interwoven with every other truth and doctrine that to take one part out is to dislocate the whole lot. This is why Christianity does not syncretize or mix with any other religion on any other point. It's not enough to take the top three most important parts of Christianity, take that to a, to a pagan or a Muslim or a Buddhist nation and sort of try at least get them to accept the minimals. You can stay Buddhist in all these other things. You can stay uh, atheist in all these other ways. You can stay a Muslim in all those other ways. Just accept the important three. That's not what God has done. He hasn't given us the top three things to memorize. He's revealed to us a whole body of internally consistent truth. Think of it as a spider's web. It is, it is absurd to be able to say or think that in a spider's web, you're not going to touch the whole thing. You're not going to affect the center, the really important part. All you're going to do is snip something right out at the edge. That's all you're going to do. But you've done it, haven't you? You've done it. I know. You, do. you pick up a stick. No one's looking. You're afraid of your hippie mates, and you poke the thing. You stick it somewhere. You throw a rock at it just to watch it bounce and twang, and it does. No, no matter where you hit it, on that spider's web, everything else is shoved out of joint. And that is Christian theology. And, and what, I, what I need you to know is that as you aim to defend the faith to others and to think of the faith yourself, and, and as you seek to be defended against heresies, you need to have a, a solid and sound understanding of systematic theology. And wherever you are now, you can begin or you can advance because systematic theology, and what we mean by that, is, is is topical and categorized understandings of the doctrines of Scripture. So you don't just see the narrative of the Bible, but you see the individual truths that God has revealed through it. So we take the whole Bible and its teaching on. God, on the Trinity, on Scripture, on the Holy Spirit, on regeneration, on justification, on sanctification, on glorification. We, we take all these categories. This is what systematic theology is. And as you get a good understanding of each of them out of maybe a systematic theology textbook, maybe a lecture series, just, just ask us if you need a good recommendation. As you understand those, each thread of the spider's web is secured and strengthened. So that when somebody comes up, and maybe they're a heretic, Maybe they're a well-meaning, ignorant brother or sister. Maybe they're somebody you found online and you're learning from their teaching. And they seek to cut an integral part or any part of the Christian doctrine and theology. You notice and you see how all of it is affected. You're not quick to jump on. You're not quick to swallow the cyanide. You're not quick to, to be found defenseless against this because you have a solid shield of systematic Theology. This is, my, this is my beseeching you. Have a good, sound theology. Don't be afraid of those words. Love it. God's word includes it. So the Christian truth is an inseparable whole. And this means, first we said, that Christianity doesn't mix at all with other religions. It stands on its own foundation in Christ. Secondly, point of application is, please know your systematic theology and how individuals all individual doctrines all interconnect, but also employ the Socratic method of asking questions and definitions. I know, again, we don't all memorize what Socratic method means. We haven't all studied logic. I haven't. I just read it in a book. Cheated. I I listened to it in a book. It was an audio book. I'm confessing. But we need to know the Socratic method. The Socratic method was a, a method of understanding truth developed by the philosopher Socrates. And we see Jesus use it, and we see Paul use it, so we better get in, uh, get in our seats and use it. And probably you already do a lot, but, but be intentional about it. Theology is, uh, and the truth of theology, and maybe the, the untruths of false theologies and heretics, you get to their core, this is the Socratic method, by asking questions and presuppositions. So somebody says that that they believe in in the the this sort of new, novel, beautiful, wonderful theology of X, Y, Z. Put in there whatever you're hearing. The Socratic method that we need to be apt in is saying, okay, you've used that word. Define what you mean by that. You've used this word over here. Now I agree with that word justification, but define what you mean. Give me a strict definition of that word justification. What do you mean by it? Defend it from scripture. How does that interconnect with other doctrines? Be about asking questions and then you undermine or you you open up the basic assumptions and which are either errors or truths. That, that's what we should be good at. Systematic theology and the Socratic method of asking questions to get to the base of theologies. But anyway, here we are. We're back in verse 14. All of that is just application out of what we see Paul doing if we seek to be like him. <clears throat> but in verse 14, we see his explicit arguments. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, he's not talking when he says preaching here, he's not just talking about, about his-, his life work. Like, oh, looking back, all of my work is in vain. He- he's not saying that. He will say that at another point later, What he is pointing out at the moment is that it is empty. Is that the work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus is powerless. That's what he's getting at. Is that it is a pointless enterprise because it has no power at its root. The apostles' view of preaching was very, very high. Sometimes in scripture, we see preaching... Put on the same level or even called the Word of God. Not because preachers count as inspired and infallible, but because the, the scriptures are meant to be preached. So, so that when preaching is done, in as much as it is biblical, it is the proclamation of the Word of God, it, it is an extension of the Word of God. You now we'd be careful how we define that, but we see in, in uh, chapters like 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. Paul talks about the the weaponry of spiritual warfare. How many of you just come from cooped up churches? And if you ask, what's the the weapons of spiritual warfare? You'll get lists, you'll get tongues, you'll get pictures, you'll you'll get people swinging around jackets and Bibles, striking people down and all that sort of nonsense. You know, I've heard your stories. I I confess, whatever you tell me, I just make as a joke to the rest of the career, just without your name. But so, so when Paul thinks of spiritual warfare and weaponry, He thinks preaching. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, he says that the weapons of our warfare by which we destroy strongholds and opinions and arguments is preaching. That's how you break the strongholds of mental, intellectual, opinionated argumentations against the truth of God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he says, he is not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God to salvation. And how how does the gospel become the power of God to bring salvation? In Romans 10, he tells us that by hearing, faith comes. How can people believe on him they've never heard? How can people hear unless they are told? How can people say it if they are not sent to preach? And so Paul sees that what makes the gospel... Effective for salvation is that it is communicated through preaching. Not just Sunday service preaching, but you, tract, sharing, online, talking to people, preaching. When we proclaim Jesus, we bring the power of the gospel to bear into their souls. 2 Corinthians 5 says that preaching is not just man talking to man, but God making his appeal to people through our words. Paul says, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that we are born again by God's seed. And that seed that is planted in our hearts to make us born again, that carries all of that resurrection power, is the gospel. And the gospel is preached. That's how it's planted. That's what, that's what Peter says. So that the apostolic understanding of preaching is so much more than just getting up and giving a message. Got to talk for you all tonight. I hope you hope you enjoy. I'm just going to get a stool, sit on down, have a just have a chat with you. You know, because I'm a hip pastor in skinny jeans. That's that's just not the apostolic understand- I don't care what they wear. Understanding of preaching, it's proclamation because God is here tearing His truth into people's hearts. And Paul is saying, it's none of that. If Jesus didn't rise, it's none of that. It's one dying man standing up in front of other terminal patients, imagining a world where there's no death. It's a starving man getting up in front of people starving to death and, and, and getting them into some group exercise of imagining a, a fine feast in a king's banquet, knowing full well there's nothing like that awaiting. them. It's a dying person's pointless hope, preaching is, unless Jesus is alive. The power of preaching is the resurrection. What comes out into our hearts as we hear the word of God proclaimed is resurrection power. It's the spirit applying the power of resurrection to our hearts. So that if Jesus is not raised, it is vain and empty. There is, it is not the power of God to salvation. There is no destroying of strongholds and arguments, as he second, says in 2 Corinthians. Faith does not come from hearing preaching, just just good, you know, well-wishing well, well and, and hope-filled luck. That, that's all it is. God is not making his appeal to people through preaching if Jesus is not raised from the dead. If Jesus is not resurrected, no one is being born again by this teaching. There is no power whatsoever unless Jesus is alive. Preaching is like... It is like somebody with a a large electric cable plugged into the wall somewhere and and they're walking around, they're hitting the button and out of it flies 40,000 volts. And it brings people to life. It, It resurrects. I'm a nurse. I know that kills people, but imagine with me. That's preaching. Every time you hand out a tract, you're slamming that button down and the gospel power goes out. You simply talk to somebody about the resurrected Jesus who is dead for them and alive for them, simply believe it's power going out. Paul says, You have that electrical cable, and you're telling me, these Corinthian heretics, you're telling me that there's such thing as electric power, but the power plant doesn't exist. You're committing a logical fallacy. Because preaching is unleashing of resurrection power. If the resurrection didn't happen, then all it is is hitting an empty button, just clicking a little switch. The resurrection didn't happen. He then says next, Your faith is futile. It is in vain. You plugged your power source into an outsource that is not connected to anything. You leaned all of your weight onto a hologram. You sprinted to the bank with a check from an account that does not exist. Your hope is worthless. It's just well-wishing. The resurrection of Jesus underlies all of our future hope. It underlies the power of preaching and the efficacy of faith. That's inference number one. That is why Paul sees it as absolutely inconceivable to think that Jesus is not raised. And you don't get to wiggle out and say, no, I believe Jesus is raised, just that we don't raise, because he's already logically proven that if you believe that, you must believe that Jesus is not raised. This is the, 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 the tight, cohesive power of logical argumentation. It is the downfall of heresies. Whenever anybody, just a little, little free one on the side, Whenever anybody tells you you are thinking too logically about the Scriptures, that you're being too careful, too nitpicking words and Scripture, they are likely trying to deceive you. Always beware somebody telling you you're you're thinking too hard about Scripture. Let's keep going. Inference number two. Look at verse 15. I hope you've got your Bible open. Look down at your own Bible. Verse 15. He then says, second inference. If that is true... We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. What He's saying is that we have misrepresented God if we are saying He raised Jesus and He didn't. But it's worse than that. Because He's not just saying we're lying about God, He's saying God sent us to lie. As apostles, They had the authority, the the seal of God on their message. They were chosen by God, commissioned by God, and sent by God. So that if what they were found to be saying was false and was a lie, it's not enough to simply say that the apostles lied. You have to say that God lied. They were representing him, sent on his message, given that message by him, So to say that the apostles lied is to say that God lied. They're making God a liar. And that is a logical fallacy. You want to do some philosophy? Yes, you cried. Thank you. Let's skip that point then. Let's keep moving. No, what Paul is saying here is that to say that God is lying is a logical fallacy. Because... Truth exists. You cannot deny that absolute truth exists. To deny that becomes a statement of truth that undergirds the fact that truth exists. You have to assume truth exists to even say truth doesn't exist. So, assumption one, truth exists. Assumption number two, truth is unknowable, or at least you can't be certain that you know anything true until you know everything that is knowable. Until you know everything that is knowable in the universe, all that you know is that some things make sense to you. But you could know 1% of the knowable facts in the universe, and therefore you have no confidence. that The other 99% doesn't outweigh what you think you know. So to know something with certainty, with any degree of certainty, you have to know everything there is to possibly know. Is this making sense? Okay, we'll keep going. And so therefore, to know anything for certain, you have to be somebody who knows everything that is true or be told something by somebody who knows everything is true. Only God knows everything that is true. That's his omniscience. He knows all things. Therefore, we don't need to know everything to know anything that is true. We simply need to be told by him what is true and can stand on that This is called another big word, uh, revelational epistemology. In other words, the reason we know is because we got told. Nobody can stand on the grounds of not what God has told me, but simply what I have experienced through empiricism or rationalized through rationalism. Both fall flat until you've experienced everything there is to experience or known everything there is to know. And you can't the only way we can be certain about knowing anything is because he who knows everything revealed it to us and therefore to say that god lied is to say that nothing is knowable because if that god who is revealing to us the, the what we can know through creation and through scripture if he is lying then nothing is knowable if he told one lie we can trust nothing that he said and therefore we're back on the grounds of knowing nothing whatsoever with certainty including the ability to make the statement that God lied now we're back to the fact that truth doesn't exist an endless cycle of logical fallacies so God exists truth exists only from God and the ways he makes that known through science and through scripture and through history and through senses he reveals many ways to us only through what God reveals, we can know what is true. Therefore, to say he has ever told a lie is a logical fallacy. We stand firm on God's truthfulness, faithfulness, and revelation to us of what is true. Amen, and even if you don't understand it, it's true. <clears throat> so, the, no, we cannot. it is therefore theologically wrong to say that God lied but philosophically unthinkable to confess that God lied. Therefore, the apostles are not lying. Jesus rose from the dead. Inference number two. Let's move now to inference number three. Look at verse 16 to 17. I'll read them for us. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He reminds them here in verse 16 of the logical assertion he said back in verse 13. The universal truth is that humans rise. If you deny that, sorry, the universal truth is that humans rise again in God's timeline. He resurrects us all. What that allows for then is Jesus' resurrection, which is the first and forerunner of us all. But if you deny the universal and say, no, nobody is raised, you don't have room to make the exclusion that Jesus rose. So again, Jesus is dead. He's in the ground if people don't rise. He reminds us of that in verse 16 because we try and wiggle and wriggle out of logical assertions when it does not fit our theology. So he reminds them again. And he makes this, the most terrifying of the assertions, I think, that he mentions. He says, if Jesus is not raised, your sins are still upon you. Your claim to believe in some Jesus Whose body is rotting in Nazareth, uh, sorry, in, in, in Jerusalem, makes no difference. Every sin you've ever committed is still in your account. Can we, can we be honest with ourselves and, and realize that that is a terrifying thought? That only the self deceived and highly proud shrug at that? Imagine you had no songs to sing about forgiveness of sins. You had no hope to rejoice in in the mornings. As you open the scripture and see that you're you're, you're, you're forgiven, you're redeemed. Sins have have been, by the blood of Jesus, full remission given to you. None of that. None of it. You are still in every one of your sins. And hell, eternal payment for those sins, is the only just end of your life. And don't get comfortable now thinking that that's some kind of future reality. You are currently under the infinite, sovereign, omnipotent, all-seeing, condemning eye of God, and that at any moment, he could take you to full and eternal justice. It's not a future reality. If you are still in your sins, you are now a blink away from eternal and infinite hell. Terrifying thought. Of course, what's in the background of Paul's mind is, do these heretics know anything of their own sin? That they can get up with a good conscience and, and, and confirm things like this? If they thought with anything of a biblical mind, if the Spirit opened their eyes at all to their own sin, they would not dare even utter a phrase of the heresy that Jesus is possibly not raised. The, the horror of thinking that your sins are still yours. They were not taken and renamed as Christ's and given to him. His righteousness was not taken, renamed, and given to you. Nothing of hope, of any forgiveness, any mercy or grace from God other than what you have already used and abused in this life is promised to you. Eternal hell awaits at any minute. If Jesus is not risen from the dead. The resurrection, we're told in Romans that Jesus was risen, he was raised for our justification. We're told here that if he did not rise, we are still in our sins, not justified, not made righteous in God's eyes. Because the resurrection was not just sort of the the logical necessity, well, he died, he's got to sort of come back, can't can't not undo that. Okay, so he's back, and then he can go up to heaven. Earth in those 40 days was sort of just a pit stop, refuel, back up to heaven, Grab his body on the go. That's not what it was. The resurrection, which was a, a publicly seen event, was the beaming approved sign. It was the stamp of approval on the payment that Jesus made. Have you ever gone to the fuel station and you're just not sure how much is left on the credit card or your debit card? You're a student, you don't have cards, you just have cash, and you're not sure how much you, you got on the card and see, so put like five bucks of fuel in It's a minimal transaction. I just got to get this bomb home. <clears throat> and You walk up to the up to the up to the guy like a car, yeah, card, your card, and you hold it tentatively. And you tap it down for a five dollar purchase. You wait, and it feels like an eternity as it, the dots roll on, processing, 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 and it declines. <laughs> and you're so embarrassed, not just because you've got to sort funds out, but because everybody knows you don't even have five bucks. Well, 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 that, that declined, that, that, that beaming light that is almost blinding as it comes up on our little black and white screen, declined transaction, is what the whole world heard if Jesus stayed dead. Those three days of Jesus dying, till Sunday morning, the whole world gathered and watched that tomb. Was the transaction of his perfect life and blood shedding was it accepted by him who lives beyond the grave. Or will his body stay there where it deserves to be because he was all talk when he said that he had God's power, God's righteousness, God's life in himself to make payment for us. The whole earth waited. The angels waited. The demons waited. Is our destruction finalized is it confirmed or do we have hope and and those in heaven they they were watching they were waiting what will occur and in the resurrection the approved sign beamed and and alarmed loud and clear the transaction he made was fulfilling of every requirement god had the requirements of righteousness the requirements of of having an infinite value to pay for many sinners the requirement of having no sin in himself so that he had no debt, those things were found in Christ. He went and he died. He was buried and his soul went to heaven. And he shared the the holy place with his blood. He sprinkled the, the heavenly holy place of which the temple was just a shadow. And he came back down into this earth and told us with his resurrection, I've done it payment is complete, it is all finalized. That's what the resurrection was. Without that, therefore, we are still in our sin. Every rebellion is in our account because Jesus, who is the one we trusted to make the payment, is cut off from God. He is fulfilling, Romans 6, which tells us that the wages of sin is death. He did not undo it. He did not pay those wages. He is still paying it off if he is still dead. Inference number four, look at verse 18. If Jesus is not raised, the Christians are burning, the dead Christians are burning in hell as we speak. Verse 18, and then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You cannot pretend that Jesus is dead, but we will live. We we go to him after death. If he's in the grave, if he's still under the punishment of God in hell, that's where we go. The the hope of life after the grave, which is not our eternal hope. Our eternal hope is coming back, God recreating the world and us getting physical bodies back. But in the interim, every Christian who falls asleep, their body goes to the ground, their souls raise up to be with Jesus. And there they wait. They're coming back to receive their bodies. They're coming back in glorious uh, triumph with Jesus and in his train. But if Jesus is not raised, they're not there. Paul is, is saying that those Christians that they know in the, in, the, in the church of Corinth who died, they're in hell. The family members that you know, who you prayed with moments before their passing, they're in hell. Every hymn you've ever sung at a funeral around with, with other Christians in, in that beautiful acapella with hope that Jesus is alive and around this hospital bed we sit with that hope. No, that person is in a worse state than their dying state. They're eternally dead in hell. Every funeral you've ever been to where somebody says anything like rest in peace or anything like we know that they're in a better place, it is all a useless, empty hope. They're in a worse place than we can imagine. Christian or not, without the resurrection, no good awaits for us after death. The best and closest thing to heaven we can experience is this life. But if Jesus is alive, then the closest thing, it has been said, The closest thing we will ever experience of hell is this life. Paul goes on. He then makes this fifth inference in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. See, if the resurrection of Jesus is, is not true, then we who have conformed our life to his death because we trust that we'll resurrect like him, if our life has looked like a symbol of crucifixion, which is what the apostles sort of lived out, it's not just dying for Jesus, it's living a death for Jesus. He says, if, if that resurrection future is not true, our lives suck most of all. I feel sorry for us. The, the most committed Christian needs your greatest pity. And unlike like it is now, which which is that the the most complacent, most lukewarm, most most still in the waters and idle Christian, they're the most to be pitied right now. Out of all those in the kingdom, they will have few rewards in heaven. They will will have little joy in in their dying moments. Friends, be zealous about the kingdom because rewards are true, eternal and coming. But if the resurrection is not true, the hardest workers that Paul said he was last week, those who take the message and live for it are the most pitiable people. Because the conclusion is, if, if Jesus does not come to, to infill us with the Spirit now, forgive us now, but also assure for us and seal for us an eternal life in an eternal world, well, the logical conclusion that the Sadducees would make, that the Platonic philosophers would make, is, well, this life is all there is. Let's eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow, existence finishes. Death ends it all, so live it up now. And, and of course, the Christian conclusion would be, and I suppose that, that everything Jesus was winning for us is supposed to happen in this life. And bung-eyed, monobrow, scarred up, scratched back, bow-legged because he got beat up so many times, Paul, who has no money, no wife, is standing there, balking eyes. No, you're kidding me you think that it's an okay conclusion to make to say this life is what Jesus died for so that we can live our most abundant, beautiful, glorious life now. Paul is to be pitied. If this life, persecutions, sacrifices, generous with our money, hospitable to people, we don't necessarily like, okay? If I got to choose a church, it'd look different. If you got to choose a church, it'd always look different. The people that we bring into our lives are different from those that God brings into our lives. Just a moment of honesty. All those sacrifices we make, moving to South Asia with a young family to be in an impoverished city where healthcare is next to zilch, that, that's worth it if this is the life we're living for. No, not worth it at all. Folly, I advise you not to do it. Don't do it. Never do it. Unless Jesus is alive. And unless on the back of that, you can come to the conclusion that this life is for spending, the next life is for inheriting. If now is for investing, throwing seeds into the soil, and the harvest comes later, then this life is for spending and investing and sowing seed as much as possible. In Paul's mindset, a good test for the Christian life is if I tell you you've got a future life where there's rest forever. If I tell you that there's a future body coming, which is not decaying, never gets tired, never feels the anxiety of strenuous labor and responsibility, I promised you that, and your response is kind of, oh, it sounds good, better than this one. get tired playing video games for six hours. I'd love to have a better body. If that's your conclusion, then then Paul's, Paul's conclusion from that is, you don't know the Christian life. Or or at least you're not living in it as you should. If, however, I tell you there is a body coming that won't perish, there's a body coming that doesn't decay, there's a life coming that is not blood, sweat, and tears, and your response is a wordless gasp of relief, you're probably living at the pace of obedience and zeal that God would have you live. The glory of the resurrection is an answer to the, to the intensity of our labors for Jesus, which is just an echo of what he has done for us. So that there's a relationship here. The, the gospel of the future resurrection is maximally good news to those who live most in light of the cross. Jesus' Sunday resurrection is the best news to those who live most like his Friday crucifixion. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just theological, but it shapes and informs our entire life lived. And so I have a few few things to conclude here because what we have gone through tonight, the, the implications and inferences of a dead Jesus, of an unraised Messiah, is the worst news imaginable. It is the worst news imaginable. But that Jesus is alive, The 1 Corinthians 15 is in this Bible because God raised his son is the best news imaginable. And we can start undoing all of the, the, the negative inferences that Paul made. He says, first of all, the preaching is in vain if Jesus is still dead. And we can conclude that no preaching is the power of God. You, despite your giftlessness... Me, despite my, my fumbling of words and confusing of categories, my accidental insults to people that, that we all try to get a, despite all of that, Jesus uses our words to save eternal souls. Preaching has power. And faith is not wishful thinking, but is the instrument by which you receive the God, man, Jesus' righteousness and eternal life. It's true. The second thing we can say, if Jesus is alive, then we are representing God himself, who is truth itself, and the heart that he has towards us when I say, leave your sins, come and be forgiven, and receive mercy. When I tell you that apostolic good news, and then the the inner human wants to say, probably not true. God can't be saying that. The preacher, the apostle, they must be misrepresenting God. But we aren't. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then you can hear me say, God loves you. God has killed his son in the place of you. God has made all the measures required so that you can trust him, be fully forgiven, justified, brought into his family and an eternal kingdom. And God will never look at you remembering any of your past sins to hold it against you. That's God's heart. If Jesus is raised from the dead, The apostolic gospel is true. When we say, when when we echo what Jesus said, when he said, come to me and I will give you rest, that's God's call. Not just a dead guy, religious guru's call. It's God who says, come to me all who are thirsty. Come to me all who are hungry. Come to me all who are tired and weary. I will give you rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's God saying it. And it is true for anybody who will believe it by faith. And thirdly, when he said negatively that if Jesus is still dead, you are still in your sins, we say that since Jesus is alive, I have not one of my sins still in my account. That we can remember them. We know them. We often feel plagued by the, the, the piercing conscience that we still have because of them. You, you remember how filthy disgusting and vile our sins have been. And and we can be confident with with Luther when, when he said that if Satan comes to accuse you of being a sinner, you just say, what of it? Jesus died for sinners. That's me. I'm in. No problem. We can say that I have not a single sin in my account. I have no blemish whatsoever standing between me and the Father. We have pure relationship of love and grace because he dealt with my sin and the resurrection proved it. It freed me. It broke the bonds of sin and death. All the work is finished and complete. I have joy in Jesus if he is alive and he is sinner. And fourthly, we can say the dead are merely asleep. They're currently with Jesus, those who are Christians. Those who are Christians, they didn't move anywhere in the house. Death to the non-believer is, is being kicked out of the realm of life into, into the most horrible of the deep, darkest and deepest of, of deaths out in the street. But for the Christian, you're just being moved from the foyer to the upstairs room, waiting. He's still in Christ. You lived in Christ and, and sure, for a portion, you, you sort of moved away from those friends that you love, but they end up coming back to you anyway. You see them upstairs. That's death for the Christian. Just moving rooms for a moment, a blink, and then the restoration and renovation of the very house that you live in. That's all death is. And for the unbeliever, death is being kicked out of that house of life into the dark streets of death. So I want to implore you if you are an unbeliever, It doesn't matter whether you're you're dead or alive if you're a Christian. It just matters that you're in Christ. Are you in Christ? By faith, look at his finished work, trust it, receive it, enter into it, and death becomes just a sleep. And so Paul calls it that. He calls it sleeping. And lastly, if Jesus is alive, scratch that. Since Jesus is alive, we are of all people most to be rejoicing. We have a finished work and a set mission before us, but a, 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 a certain victory. We have a finished salvation already given to us, not like the Islamics, not like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons or Buddhists who, who have a long ladder to climb to God. We have God come to us, completed the work, brought us into his very presence and nature and relationship in his son, and we live our life there. We have the best songs to sing because we call out and cry out to God in exaltation of the glorious gospel that is true. We are rejoicing. Though we labor, I know some of us have depression. I know some of us have anxiety. I know that some of us struggle under the stresses of maybe our job or certain situations. I know there's time to mourn and weep at the deathbed. But even every bit of suffering is just gearing you back like an automatic uh, uh, a crossbow being clicked back on a castle wall. The further it pulls back, the harder it's going to fly. Every bit of suffering, you're just clicking back a little bit more, and there is more glory yet to come. The, the Christian has joy unspeakable in our labor, in our life, and in our death. We have a resurrected Jesus, and therefore we have a powerful, life giving, promised good news to tell the world, to tell our friends, to tell you, Jesus is alive. Leave your sins behind. Come to him, embrace him, be found in him. Let's pray. Father God, that, that grave, that tomb of Jesus was such a depressing and hopeless sight for his friends and his disciples and his family members. But Lord, because of Sunday morning's resurrection, it became the the start of a proclamation of the best news that has ever echoed throughout the cosmos, that Jesus, the mediator who stood between God and man, has come out victorious in his payment, in his mission, in his ministry. He completed the work that was given to him. And therefore, we who simply believe, and Lord, there's there's nothing left to do. Would you please remove from all of our minds the sense, the idea the attitude that we need to bring things to top up Jesus' work or we need to bring something to tip the scales in our favor. Lord, remove that from us. We come empty, we come naked, we come poor, we come hungry. You give to us what is needed. And Lord, we thank you for that. I I pray that you would give faith to those who do not believe so that they can transfer from death to life, that they will live even though they die. They're just asleep. Lord, would you please turn death from that undefeated enemy to a simple footstool of Jesus for those who do not yet believe. And for, the, for those of us who do, may the resurrection become something that is joy-giving, which, which gives power and proclamation to our voices so that we can speak of Jesus boldly and joyfully, welcoming and inviting people to come and know our King. Lord, would you make us a church that is built and founded and unshifting, unwavering from the foundation of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and he rose according to your glorious scriptures. And everybody said, amen.